Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, and if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan. Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I haven't seen most of you for a couple of weeks. Uh, Carrie and I have had a couple vacations back to back. It's great to be back with you all. We got out to the desert with Carrie's family. It was about 75 degrees out there. Uh, we got out to Big Bear with my side of the family. It was about 80 degrees out there. Actually, that's true. Um, but we had a good, good couple weekends off and um, hope you guys have had a good August so far, but it's, it is great to be back with you to worship together and to be able to share with you this morning. I want to thank uh, Daniel Gaiman and Craig Hill for teaching in my stead the last two weeks, and they continued in our sermon series. And this summer, we have been talking about, as Ryan mentioned, how do we cultivate this rich inner life with God? How do we cultivate a relationship with God? What are some of the practices? What are some of the postures and disciplines that we can engage in that help to cultivate that relationship? Uh, Two weeks ago, Daniel talked about just this posture of obedience and submission to God. And then Craig last week talks about this posture of confession, regularly acknowledging our brokenness. And so today I'm going to continue in this. And today we're going to talk about the discipline of fasting. And we're almost done with this series. We have one more week. But second to last week, we're talking about fasting. And I I need to say, before I start, uh, I need to confess, to go back to last week's message, uh, my lack of experience and uh, thought about fasting. I have never taught on fasting. I've never really studied fasting until now. And I did not plan at the beginning of the summer to include fasting in this series uh, for those reasons. And then I had a friend of mine who challenged me, said, I think especially for those reasons, I think you should teach on fasting. I was like, ah, darn it, I think you're right. Um, so I decided to, and I'm really glad he challenged me in that way because it's been a really great experience this last month of thinking about this, experimenting with this. And so I'm very excited today to share uh, what at least I have been learning as still a beginner in this conversation. My guess is that many of you here are also beginners in fasting. I would guess some of you have never 
tried this before. And I would guess if I just say the word fasting, we were all to share, what are, what are the images that come to your mind when you think about that? I would guess there'd be a lot of different images. Uh, some of us, I would think uh, you have some picture of some all-star saint out there who is a lot more spiritual than you are and does lots more spiritual things than you do. And uh, for me, just in the last month, it's been fun to realize that's not true at all. <laughs> that fasting is, is a tool, it is a discipline that is available to us ordinary folk, us ordinary sinners. And that's what you see in scripture. And so I'm excited um, to, to talk through this with you today. And let me start with a, a description. What is fasting? I, I don't think this needs to be said, but I'll say anyways. Here's a description, not a definition necessarily, but a description of fasting. Uh, fasting is voluntarily going without food, duh, uh, or any other regularly enjoyed good gift from God for the sake of some spiritual purpose, right? You're abstaining from food, and it doesn't have to be food. It could be anything that is good in and of itself, some gift in God's creation, but you're voluntarily abstaining from it in order to seek some spiritual purpose. Uh, I'm going to talk almost entirely about fasting from food today because the scripture talks almost entirely, almost every example of fasting we have in scripture, almost, not all, but almost all of them have to do with fasting from food. So that's going to be my focus, but just know we can fast from any of God's good gifts for some spiritual purpose. What I realized as I was thinking about fasting is you can't really talk about fasting without first talking about food. Um, so I want to talk about food for a couple minutes. Uh, anybody here like food? food? Fans of food? Yeah? Okay. Uh, I would guess we have some foodies here. Some of you love food. Some of you think about food a lot. Some of you eat for comfort, for satisfaction, for community. For some of us, uh, food may just be kind of the fuel we need, but others of us, it's a, it's a deep sense of, of enjoyment and satisfaction in life. And for all of us, it, it is this utterly central part of our existence, right? We're, we're hungry people, and food is, is this basic sustenance for life. And what struck me this week is in thinking about the biblical story, how central food is to the whole story of Scripture. If you kind of follow the biblical narrative, food has this key part to play in all the key moments of, this, of the story of Scripture. Let me just kind of take you through this really quickly, what, what I'm talking about here. Um, the centrality of food in Scripture, you see it at the beginning in the story of creation. You see it in the story of the fall. Uh, you see it in the story of redemption, and you see it in the story of restoration. The second coming of Christ is what I mean by that. And so I want to just in three minutes walk you through the centrality that food plays in the biblical story, uh, beginning with the creation account itself. Genesis 1, first book and chapter of the Bible. God creates the world, and then he creates humanity, male and female, in his image, and he says to them, well, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Go out into this world I've made. You guys are, are, are I've put you in charge of this place. Go out and fill it. And then he says something interesting. He says this, then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. So I bet you haven't thought about this much, but the very beginning, we are depicted as essentially hungry beings, hungry creatures, 
in God's world is depicted as basically this banquet table of food that God has provided for us. Today, we would call it an edible garden, right? God, he created us as hungry beings, and he created this world that is essentially an edible garden for us. All this food that is available for you to eat. That's the creation account. What about the account of the fall? Genesis 2 and 3. Well, we all know that the temptation surrounded the issue of food, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis 2, it says this, The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, all these trees I've given you, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. God gives him this garden and says, you can eat from any of the trees. But there's one tree, there's one food that I don't want you to eat from. It's the food from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is, it's the food of deciding for yourselves what is good and what is evil. I want you to depend on me for that knowledge. Trust that I know what is good and what is bad for you, okay? I don't want you taking that into your own hands. But they decided to take the food of independence from God. We'll decide for ourselves what we think is good and what is evil. We'll play the role of God. And God said, that's the one food I don't want you to eat. And of course, they ate that food. And the world has not been the same ever since. Sin entered the world and and all the brokenness that we see is ultimately a cause of this fundamental decision that every human being makes to eat the food of independence from God. Choosing for ourselves what we think is good and what we think is wrong. Well, the story of redemption, how this problem gets solved in Jesus Christ is, is remembered in a meal, of course. God sends his son into the world, into this broken world. And he willingly sacrifices himself on the cross to pay for the sins of the world, all these independent choices we made that separate us from God. And Jesus takes on himself all that sin, pays the penalty for that on the cross. And he invites us, he commands us even, to remember that sacrifice through food, through communion. He says, I want you to take and eat this bread. Take it inside and into you. It represents my body that was broken for you on the cross. Take this cup of wine. We do juice here, right? Take this juice. It represents my blood that was shed for you. But there's a meal at the center of our memory of salvation. And then finally, restoration. When Christ returns, that image is depicted as this great feast, right? It'll look better than this, but that's a, that's a pretty decent spread, right? The glasses aren't filled, so it feels lacking to me, but um, it's a start. Revelation 19, 6 through 7. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. This, the story ends with us feasting, eating and drinking together with Jesus in the kingdom of God. All that to say, food is utterly central to the biblical story. And it just struck me this week. And I, this is so basic that we often don't think about it. When God made us, he made us hungry beings. And then he made something called food that satisfies and fills that hunger. And he did not have to make us that way. Right? He could have made any universe he wanted to. But he chose to make us hungry. And he chose to create something called food that satisfies and fills that hunger. And I think at least what he's telling us in that is this. I have made you hungry beings with hungers and cravings, desires and longings. And ultimately, (laughs) I want to be the satisfaction. I want to fill those hungers. I want to satisfy you with 
myself. And so Jesus, of course, calls himself the bread of life, right? I am the bread of life. Whoever hungers, all these longings and hungers and thirsts you have, ultimately are hungers and thirsts for me. Come to me and I will satisfy you both now and for all eternity like nothing else can satisfy you. We're hungry and at the base of all our hungers is a hunger for God. God made us that way so that he might fulfill our desires. So that's the five-minute conversation on food. Now, fasting, then, is voluntarily abstaining from food and in so doing, actually making ourselves hungrier beings. (laughs) It is choosing not to satisfy that hunger, but actually to delay the hunger and feel that hunger even more acutely. And the question is, why would anyone ever do that? To what purpose would a person voluntarily make themselves a hungrier being? What to what purpose? And so what I want to do is I want to give you just a quick five-minute overview of some of the reasons in Scripture that people choose to fast, that God's people choose to fast, and I think do so appropriately. All right, so here's some of the, some of the purposes. Today's going to feel a little, you know, fasting 101-ish, okay, because this is an introduction, I imagine, for some of you, so I'm giving you a bit of an overview. But what are some of the purposes of fasting in Scripture? So what I did is I tried to find all the places in scripture where you see people fasting and thought, why are they fasting? And I, I put them into four key categories. These are my categories. There's nothing biblical, but I think they, they cover the, the broad reasons why people in scripture fast. You guys ready? You kind of don't look ready. Just being honest. You ready? All right. You're back. All right. You may have not gone anywhere. I know you're hungry right now, right? It's going to be, we're, I'm going to keep you here to like one today and we're going to fast involuntarily. All right, four reasons that I see. First purpose is because people fast when they're in mourning. Uh, when there's some, something that happens in the world that causes grief, uh, loss, or something, and they're mourning. Uh, the example I, I have here, I have an example for each one. Uh, Old Testament, right before David becomes king, uh, who was the king before David? Saul. First service I said, who was the Saul before David? And then the answer was king. So I got it right this time. The king before David was Saul, right? King Saul, and he had his son Jonathan, who was close friends with David. They were out on the battlefield fighting the Philistines, and Saul and his son Jonathan were killed. This tragic event. And 2 Samuel 1 says this, Then David, and when they heard this news, Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept, and they fasted for Saul and his son Jonathan. So fasting is an expression of mourning here. Second one, uh, it is an expression of confession and repentance. And that's kind of connected in a sense. It's a mourning over our sin. When people are wanting to repent and confess to God their sins, often that is accompanied with fasting. The story here that I wanted to use is in the book of Nehemiah. So there's a group of Israelites who had come back from exile in Persia. They'd come back into the promised land, and they're starting to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuilding the city walls. Eventually, they'd rebuild the temple. And, then, and, and there was a priest who, while they were there, read the law of God, probably the, you know, the old parts of the Old Testament. And these people hadn't heard the law for maybe their whole lives because they'd been in exile. And as he read the law, the people realized how far they had wandered from God's commandments over a couple generations. They're just, you know, they're probably parents and their parents' parents. And the gap between 
what God had called them to as, as the Jewish nation, what they were living was so great and they really felt their sin. And this was the response that people had together. On the 24th day of the month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. They stood in their places and they confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers. So they recognized their sin, their, their brokenness, and they fasted and confessed their sins. Uh, third category is when people are put in places of total dependence on God. I would even say when they're in desperate times, when, when they're, they really need God to intervene or they're going to be in big trouble. Oftentimes, fasting is one of the things that God's people do. The story here is in the book of Esther. Uh, this is back when Israel was in exile in Persia. And Esther was a Jewish woman living in exile. And she was brought into the Persian king's harem, essentially. And he loved her more than any of the other, other women in that group. And so he made her queen. He did not know that she was Jewish. The king had an aide who had this plan to basically exterminate all the Jews living in exile. And that, that plan was actually going to go into place. And so Esther finds out about this. And she realizes, I've got to go talk to the king and plead on behalf of the Jewish people. But to do that, she would be risking her life. He doesn't know she's Jewish. And you can't just approach the king in the ancient world. You can actually be killed for doing that. And so she says, but she's this courageous woman. She says, I'm going to do that. But before she does that, she invites all the Jewish people in the area to spend some time fasting. Here's the passage. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, who's one of the Jewish leaders. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Before I come to the king. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maids will also fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I die, I die. Okay? So this desperate time, they need God to intervene. And she says, would you fast for me? And I'll fast. And hopefully God will respond to our prayers. And of course, God does respond to their prayers and fasting. And and the Jewish people are saved. And then one final one. Times of preparation and what I'm calling discernment. Times where people are looking out in the future and, and they're asking for God's guidance on, on a particular thing. And oftentimes that takes place with fasting and prayer. And that brings us to our passage today that Jen read to us. Uh, the story of Jesus and probably the most famous fast of all in scripture in his 40-day fast in the wilderness. So I want you to turn in your Bibles if you've got your phones out still. Uh, I'm not going to teach through this passage. I just want to make a couple comments on it as we go. So I think that fits. Jesus is preparing for his public ministry. He's now 30 years old. He's lived 30 years as a fairly normal guy in Nazareth, probably following in his father's carpentry business. And now he's going to begin his public ministry of teaching and preaching and healing and all that he did. And so that public ministry is initiated by a time of intense prayer and fasting, actually 40 days of fasting and prayer. And that alone deserves our attention. Um, When I came to work at Grace, I didn't start my time of public ministry with 40 days of fasting and prayer. My ministry hasn't been quite as fruitful as Jesus' ministry. Um, So I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Um, But that's an interesting thing that it's easy to overlook. 40 days he started in preparation for this this, uh, public ministry. Uh, and he didn't just decide it on his own. Actually, the Spirit uh, led him to do this. Look at verse 1, chapter 4, Matthew. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's there for 40 days. 
Uh, and, and what he's doing, among other things, is he's reliving the experience of Israel in the wilderness. Okay? So you've got to think about the story of Israel. They came out of slavery from Egypt, right? And they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And that time was a time of testing and preparation as they were moving into the promised land. Would they depend on God? Would they trust in God or not? And so Jesus, as a Jewish man, he's reliving the story of Israel. Now for 40 days, a time in the wilderness, it was a time of preparation, of discernment. What is his ministry going to be all about? God had some things that he wanted to shape in Jesus, God the Father, in that time. And, and fasting and prayer was part of the context of that. So uh, verse 2, uh, we get my favorite understatement in all of the Bible. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Indeed, he was. Uh, and then verse three, the tempter, Satan came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So Jesus is really, really hungry. And Satan said, if you're the son of God, and what happened right before this was Jesus baptism, right? Where God, the father actually spoke from heaven and said, you are my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you. And Satan's like, okay, if you're God's son, if you're really God's son, well then tell these stones to be turn into bread. If you're God's son, what are you doing out in the wilderness starving to death? I mean, that's no way for God's son. You're the king. You're the Messiah. That's no way for Messiah to live. You have power. Use your power. Satisfy this craving. You don't have to, you don't have to be hungry. You're the son of God. Use that power. Turn these stones to bread. Fulfill your cravings. Use your power to satisfy yourself. Jesus' reply, he, he quotes Deuteronomy when Israel was in the wilderness. Jesus says in verse 4, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying to Satan, You know what? Physical bread is not the only thing that sustains me. Physical bread is not the only thing that satisfies me. My Father... Ultimately, my heavenly father, he's who sustains me and satisfies me. Every word that comes from his mouth, I feed on his promises. I feed on his commands. And right now, his command for me is to go hungry, is to depend on him rather than to assert my own power to feed myself. I don't live for bread alone. I live for obeying my father. And so I'm not going to do this. I'm going to stay in this place of of dependence for him. And and really that decision and the other two temptations together, this sets the tone for his whole ministry. The question is, as he starts his ministry, what kind of a Messiah are you going to be? Are you a Messiah who's going to go the way of power and privilege and and worldly satisfaction and fame? Is that how you're going to be Messiah? Or are you going to go this way of humility, of obedience, of dependence on your father, of a type of worldly hunger, actually, but that is ultimately deeply spiritually satisfying, not only for Jesus, but for the entire world. And of course, Jesus chooses that, that second path. So I know I'm, I'm not, I'm just scratching the surface on that passage. Um, but just important to note that Jesus starts his ministry with 40 days of fasting and prayer. And then just to round this off, I wanted to, to Give one more example in this second category of times of preparation and discernment. This is a time in the early church after Christ died and was raised and the church is spreading. Uh, Paul has now become a Christian. He's still being called Saul in this passage. But churches are being formed throughout the Mediterranean. And a church starts in the city of Antioch. And the church is filled with uh, pastors and, and uh, prophets. And they're trying to discern, what, what do you have next for us, God? And here's, here's it. it's just these three verses in Acts 13. 
In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, there's our word, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Uh, Notice how the author is emphasizing fasting here. He says it before the Spirit speaks, and he says it after the Spirit speaks. So this group of people are trying to discern God's leading. They're praying, they're fasting. And in that context, the Spirit says, Barnabas and Saul, that's Paul. These are the two guys that I've called to go start this missionary journey. And these two guys leave together with a small team with them, and they embark on some of the most fruitful ministry the world has ever seen as they move through the Mediterranean region, spreading churches everywhere. And that was initiated by a time of worship and fasting and prayer. So between Jesus and Paul's missionary journey, we can say some of the most fruitful missionary work was at least initiated and sparked by times of fasting and prayer. All right, so I think that's a a decent overview, okay? You with me on that? See how that, that works? Now, what I want to ask is to try to bring this, what's the point to bring this home? What I, I see there's something in common about all of these uh, examples. They all have the experience of hunger in them, of, of an ache, of, of a sense of lack, and a desire for God to fill that. And I just want you to think for a second about physical food, okay? What it feels like to be physically hungry. You know that ache, that actual ache you feel in your belly, that sense of emptiness. And then you know the experience of taking in food and having that emptiness, that ache satisfied, filled by food. And I think that's what all of these have in common. All of these are ways of saying, God, we, we are aching. We're hungry for more of you. Okay? In mourning, you feel the ache of the brokenness of this world. And there's this hunger, God, we're, we're, we hunger for your comfort in the midst of the brokenness. In repentance, you feel the ache of your own sin, ah, the ways that I'm broken. And there's a hunger for a reminder of God's forgiveness in a deep way again. In these times of desperation, we feel just the, the ache of our own powerlessness, our own inability to solve our, our problem. And there's this hunger, God, we need your intervention. We just need you to come and act in a way that we can't act. In these times of preparation and discernment, there's this ache of, of, of our own resources. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the wise course of action is. And there's this hunger, God, I need your guidance. I need your direction. I need your empowerment. The point being in all of this that I want you to get, if all you hear is, is this, it's that, that fasting in all these examples is essentially saying to God, God, we are hungry beings. We're hungry. And ultimately, we're hungry for more of you. We're hungry for more of your comfort or your forgiveness or your intervention or your guidance, whatever. But ultimately, God, we're hungry beings and we're hungry for more of you. Ultimately, we want more of you. And fasting is simply a a physical tool God's people have to say, God, we're hungry for you. And Jesus, we want more of you, more of your presence, more of your direction, more of your truth, more of your comfort, more of you. Does that make sense? Not very much. Okay. It was making sense to me earlier this week. So, you know, sometimes when you say it out loud, it stops making sense. But um, uh, I want to take you to, uh, to this uh, diagram I showed you about a month ago when we were talking about the Sabbath. Uh, we talked about uh, 
feasting versus fasting. And feasting and fasting are both great ways to cultivate our relationship with God. It's not, one is not better than the other. They're both great ways. But just to remind you, uh, feasting is a, is a great way to cultivate our relationship with God. In feasting, what we're doing, there's me on the left, there's God on the right. In the middle is some good gift that God gives. It could be food. It could be family. It could be my work. It could be money. It could be creation. It could be recreation. Any of God's good gifts. When we feast, when we take in God's good gifts, so let me just use food since that's our conversation, that is an opportunity to experience the goodness of God through his gifts. So the gift, in this case, a a really nice, I'll say a nice filet mignon, glass of red wine, mashed potatoes, asparagus. Okay, that's about as good as it gets for me. Okay, lava cake for dessert, uh, uh, vanilla on top, right? Melting, oozing out. Uh, And then I don't sleep so well. Um, uh, When I take in the gift, it's a way to experience God. It's, I, can, I can see God's goodness through the gift. God communicates his goodness to me through that. And it can be a window. I can experience fellowship with God through a great meal or through any one of God's good gifts in creation. And that's a beautiful way to do that. And we talked about on Sabbath. Sabbath is a day for feasting. It's a great day to experience God through his gifts. But fasting is also a great way to cultivate our relationship with God. And in fasting, what we're doing is we're acknowledging, you know, as good as your gifts are, ultimately, it's not your gifts that we want. And actually, sometimes your good gifts can become barriers to you because we can develop unhealthy attachments to your gifts, right? Money is a great gift, Lord. It is a gift from you, but I can develop an unhealthy attachment. Food is a great gift, but I can develop a disordered attachment. And so in fasting, what we do is we voluntarily do an end around the gift. We abstain from the gift. And in doing that, what we're telling ourselves and what we're telling God is, God, ultimately, it's not your gifts I want. Ultimately, it's you I want. I mean, my family, my kids, this food, money, this home, my friends, these are great things. But ultimately, what I need and what I want most of all is you. You're the gift. The giver is the ultimate gift. And so in fasting, we intentionally make ourselves hungry in order to let that hunger point us to God, drive us to God. And we're going to feel that craving. Ah, gosh, I'm fasting from TV for a week, okay? For many of us, that's going to create a massive craving in us. Uh, Food, you name it. And in doing that, I'm... I'm telling God, ultimately, it's you that I want. And so both feasting and fasting are beautiful ways to cultivate our relationship with God. But what strikes me as I've been studying this this week is that in Orange County in 2017, in our consumeristic culture where we have almost every product available at a click of a button, right, or at a store nearby, um, we've got feasting down pretty well. Uh, if I could just say it there. Like, we don't need to be taught how to feast in 2017 Orange County. We, we get that one pretty well. So you can all give a course on, on feasting. And what it seems to me is that, that fasting uh, is something that we're not as used to. It's something that's very counter-cultural, but that would be a very helpful tool, particularly for us where we live and when we live, in cultivating our relationship with God. I think there's a lot for us to learn in fasting. So I'm going to give you a, 
a challenge, a fast challenge uh, this week or in the next month. But before I do, I just I, one other thing I wanted to, to really round out this overview in Scripture. I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention there's places in Scripture that talk about warnings about how we approach fasting. They don't call us not to fast, but they say it's important the posture that you have when you fast. That, that's an important thing. And I'm just going to include two examples. I think they're the, the most helpful ones. Probably the most famous warning is Jesus' own warning in the Sermon on the Mount where he's talking about religious activities. He mentions uh, giving money charitably. He mentions prayer and fasting. And he says, hey, there's a posture that I want you to have. So here's the one on fasting. Uh, when you fast, notice Jesus doesn't say if you fast. The assumption is you will fast. And when you fast... He says, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Don't make it obvious to everybody that you're fasting. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let me take you back to the beginning. So I think Jesus is saying this. You know, these are people who fast to to show others how spiritual they are, right? And Jesus is saying, the whole point of fasting is to tell God, God, I am hungry for more of you. I'm hungry, and ultimately I'm hungry for more of you. And these people, they're not fasting because they're hungry for God. What are these people hungry for? You tell me. Yes, they're hungry for the praise and approval of other people. She's like, that's, you've missed the whole point. You've got the wrong audience in mind when you're fasting. The whole point is to, to talk to God about your hungers for him. You hypocrites, you're not hungry for God. You're just hungry for praise and approval from other people. Now, the other example is in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah. Again, the, the story of Israel. This is a season where Israel was being particularly disobedient. Uh, they were not obeying God's laws, but they were still doing their religious stuff. They were still worshiping. They are still fasting. And in this uh, passage, they're, they're upset. They're frustrated because God is not answering their prayers, okay? Even though they're not living the way God wants them to. So they're laying a complaint against God. This is the people of Israel complaining to God. Why have we fasted? They say, and you've not seen it. God, why have we humbled ourselves through fasting and and you have not noticed? You're not answering our prayers. And God responds, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wander with shelter? That's the kind of fast I'm looking for. Again, I think God is saying to this group of people, hey, you're fasting, but you don't hunger for me. If you hunger for me, you would live the life that I'm calling you to to live and how you treat the poor and all all these things that he says. You don't hunger for me. You just hunger to have your prayers answered. (laughs) That's what you want. And you think that maybe if we fast... That somehow entitles you to have your prayers answered, as if your fasting strong arms me into having to do what you want me to do. But you don't understand, prayer is not a position of power before me. Prayer is, is a position of weak, or, or fasting. Fasting is a, is a position of weakness. It's a, it's a posture of saying, we can't entitle ourselves to have you answer our prayers. We can't strong arm you. We're, we're acknowledging we're hungry, we're needy, and without you, out of your own freedom, choosing to, 
act for us, we can't do anything. I use those examples just to confirm. It seems to me that fasting is all about God's people saying, we are hungry. And what we're hungry for, God, is ultimately more of you. And fasting is a way that we say that to you and to ourselves, asking more of you in our lives, more of your presence, more of your guidance, more of your direction, more of you, in a word. We're hungry for you. And as I wrap this up, what struck me this week was, at least in my own life, and I would guess in some of your lives, we fast so little. And I think part of that is just educational. Like, I just haven't been taught it. I haven't thought about it before. But what I was thinking this week for myself is, I wonder if one of the reasons I don't fast more is because maybe I'm just not that hungry for God. I'm not as hungry for more of God as I could be. And I wonder if the reason that that's true, which it definitely is, is because it's so easy where I am to grab all these things from the world and to get all my desires and longings met and all these good things that aren't bad things but are readily available. And so I fill myself with all these things. And in doing that, I miss out on a deeper level of satisfaction that God wants to give me in essentially giving me himself, not just his gifts. And so for me, that was the convicting part of this experience was to recognize, you know, God, I don't always hunger for more of you. Or or maybe I do, but I I think it's a hunger for your gifts. And I, I get that craving fed through all these other ways rather than going to you. And so I think for people like me, I imagine for some of you, prayer is or fasting is a great tool to begin to engage God in that conversation. So I want to leave you, as I have on all of these uh, summer disciplines, with a challenge, an invitation to try a fast. Some of you do this, I know, but maybe if you never have before, this could be your opportunity to experiment with a fast sometime in the next couple weeks, all right? And I want to give you a couple thoughts on how you might go about that. Uh, First... I think you need to answer the question. You need to identify the why of your fast, right? What's the reason for the fast? And here's the question I encourage you to ask with God. God, where am I hungry for more of you? Start with your hunger. God, where, where is it I'm wanting you to act? Where do I feel the ache? Where do I feel the longing? Where am I hungry for you to do a new work? And maybe that can become the focus That's going to be the thing I'm praying for during the fast. So, for instance, maybe the ache is you've got something coming up that you're seeking God's guidance and direction on. Okay, you've got a career move you're thinking about. You've got a relationship you're trying to think through. It could be any number of things, but there's something in the future that's coming up that you feel like, I need, I feel the ache of not knowing what to do here. God, I need your direction and your guidance. Well, a fast, that would be a great thing to focus your prayers on if you're going to do a fast. Uh, Another one, Uh, maybe there's an ache in the world that you're feeling right now, and that would be the focus. Um, I think of what's been going on in Charlottesville the last week and a half, okay? All the the racial tension that we experienced, the political tension, all all of that tension that you might go, gosh, there's just an ache in my heart for what's going on in our nation. And that's going to be the focus of my fast. Um, 
It could be, I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a national thing. It could be your own children are going some, through something really hard. But it, it leaves you with this ache. You say, I want to I wanna pray and, and let that be the focus. And I think sometimes when, you, when there's an ache in the world, this is a good opportunity to do fasts with one another. If there's a, a group of people that have a shared passion for something, like we, we want to see God move in this way, that a fast is something that you can do together in that. And then finally, it may just be as simple as your own relationship with God and say, you know what? As I hear this, it's true. I'm just not that hungry for God. Like, I got everything I need here. I, I, things I can, Amazon gives me what I need. You know, I got the grocery store right there. I got my friends. You know, I got, got my houses, whatever. Um, and you're like, yeah. I, 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 maybe, maybe all this is about is just my relationship with God and, and experiencing physical hunger as a way to lean in and say, God, I, I want to be hungry for more of you. I am hungry for more of you in these areas. So it could be as simple as that. But you want to, there's a reason you're doing it. You're not just doing it to do it. Uh, and then second, um, simply, you've got to identify a time <laughs> to fast, right? And I would encourage you to do what I did, which is to start small. Okay, don't jump into the 40-day fast, the Jesus fast. Um, I've actually been living a 40-year fast, you know, so by the looks of me, I'm very spiritual. Uh, but don't try to do that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I could, never mind. Um, I'm just, yeah, I get, sorry, this is just fun. I get a comment, I think once a month, Dave, have you lost weight? Uh, um, for the last 10 years of my life, about once a month, Dave, have you lost weight? Now my answer is probably. Um, so the math doesn't work over time, but it seems to be the way. Anyways, uh, but I would start small. Uh, in fact, maybe you start with a meal. You say the next three weeks, I'm going to take off my Wednesday lunch or my Tuesday breakfast. Uh, and I, if you're a working person, I, I kind of like the lunch option. Maybe this doesn't work with your work schedule, but most of us take some kind of break for lunch uh, in our work day. Some of us keep, we have a working lunch, but uh, maybe you go out to, you know, to lunch with people or you stop. So I think that's a, that's a cool space that you have a half an hour to an hour and say, you know, I'm not going to eat uh, that meal. And I'm going to use the time that I would have spent eating to then engage this, this prayer, this issue that I'm wanting to bring before the Lord. So I think a meal would be a great place to start. Otherwise, maybe a day. You say, I'm going to go from sundown on Thursday to sundown on Friday. Take a 24-hour period. I think those are good starting points. And then you've got your issue, you've got your time, and then simply here's what you do. You let the hunger be your cue to lean into God. So you're going to feel hunger. And every time you feel the hunger, that's your trigger to pray. God, I want to lift up our nation. Or God, again, I need your discernment on this issue. So you don't just experience hunger through that time and deprive yourself of food. You let the hunger trigger engagement with God praying. I've talked a lot about food. I I will say, I think for some of us, maybe a better fast would be a like TV slash, um, you know, social media fast. Maybe you say Wednesday night, I'm shutting down. I come home and, and there's no TV on. There's no computer on. For some of us, that would be a bigger fast than the fast from a meal. And then you have like three hours where you can engage God in prayer. You can go for a walk and you can have a, a time with God. So that might be a better way to do it. All that to say, and I'll, I'll wrap up with this. It is this tool we have available to say to ourselves and say, God, God, we're hungry. And ultimately, we're hungry for more of you. That's what we want. 
not just more of your gifts. We want more of you. So come, Lord Jesus. That was the prayer of the early church. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, into our lives, into our neighborhoods, into our place of work, into our families. Come. We want more of you. We're hungry for more of you. Let's pray. Lord, you are the bread of life. Father, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless. They're hungry until they find their rest in you. Thank you for making us hungry creatures. Thank you for giving us food, and ultimately thank you for giving us your own son as our, as our true meal, that we might find satisfaction in him. And I pray your blessing on your people as some of us engage in this experiment that for some of us will be the first time. Would you bless that? Would you, uh, would you meet us in that? That we might receive the satisfaction of your guidance and your comfort and your forgiveness, your help, your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.